While cleaning the closet some years ago, I ran into Matt's old hunting vest. Actually, it's still a new vest. He only used it once. When he was about 12, he started talking about going hunting with a gun. At the time, I was hunting with hawks and falcons, but Matt wanted to use a gun. So even though I hadn't hunted with a gun in a long time, I felt if he wanted to do so, I should pass on to my son the hunting tradition my dad had passed on to me. We took the hunter's safety course together, and I bought him a license. We then went to mom's and got the gun that dad had let me use for my first hunt, a single-shot, 12-gauge shotgun. Before we headed to the woods, Matt asked if he should practice with the shotgun, but since he already knew how to shoot, having shot a BB gun, a pellet gun, and a 22, I told him we'd save the shells for game. Dad had always told me I should have a head of game for every shell I shot. I'm sure he'd have something to say about the ridiculous number of shells I'm going through on clay birds now that I've discovered the challenge of shooting trap. Anyway, I had already told Matt about my first hunt, how Dad and I went to the woods together, how we spotted a squirrel, and how we or how I brought it down with my first shot. So together we walked to the creek, and soon we spotted a squirrel high in a tree. I went to the far side, and Matt waited for it to come around where he was waiting. He held the gun tight to his shoulder, like Dad taught me, and dropped it with a single shot. I'll never forget the excitement we shared or his words. Just like you, Dad. Just like you. We captured the moment on film and had squirrel for dinner. Matt had gone hunting. He was very proud of himself. He had proven he could do it. And until several years ago, he hadn't felt the need to do it again. It didn't matter to me that we didn't go hunting with a gun again. We had done something together that neither of us would ever forget. And surely nothing could make a father prouder than to see his son do well and then hear him say, just like you, Dad, just like you. Now, there is something very special about the bond between a father and a son. It's only natural. Even Jesus had a special bond with his earthly father. For in his hometown, he was not only known as the carpenter's son, but after his father's death, as the carpenter. But as we're reminded at Christmas, Jesus was also the Son of God. And he had a very special bond with his heavenly Father as well. And obviously it was more than a natural bond. It was a supernatural bond. He called God his Father, and he had come to earth from the Father's side, but he didn't have a genetic link to his father. He was actually one with his father. To see him 
was to see the Father. Because the Father lived and spoke and worked through Jesus while he was on earth. It was important for his disciples to understand this. Because Jesus had just told them that he was leaving for a time. But in a matter of days, Jesus would make it possible for him to do through them what the Father had done through him. To live and speak and work through them. And Jesus had to get them ready. So he reminded them again of his special relationship with the Father before telling them of the relationship they would have with him after he was gone. He began by saying again, the Father is in me. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Now, this shouldn't have been a new thought for the disciples. Jesus had taught on his oneness with the Father before. He didn't put it quite as clearly as with the author of Hebrews when he wrote of Jesus, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. But he had tried to make it clear that he and the Father were one in purpose and in person. So he began by simply reminding them that if they had known him, they would have known the Father. And since they did indeed know him, they had seen the Father. Well, at the mention of seeing God, Philip got really excited and cried out, Lord, show us the Father. That would be more than they could ever hope to see. You know, I'm sure he had in mind a vision of God surrounded by heavenly beings under a rainbow on his throne, like what Isaiah and Ezekiel had seen. Jesus was crushed. The frustration in his voice is readily felt as he says, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Three years. And Philip still didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't realize that Jesus was God in the flesh. To see Jesus was to see the Father. How could Philip say, show us the Father? He still didn't understand that Jesus was in the Father and the Father was in Jesus. That they were, in fact, one and the same. Now, even though Jesus was in human form on earth, 
He was still the same God who inhabited heaven, and the Father in heaven was present in the earthly Jesus. Even the words Jesus spoke weren't his words. They were the Father's words. It was a voice of God they heard when Jesus spoke. The eternal, almighty God in human form. I trust we understand that. We've been celebrating the incarnation for nearly 2,000 years. John began his letter by telling us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was God in the flesh. That's what it means to be incarnate. Jesus was God on earth in physical form. So the work Jesus did was God's work, and that should have been evident to Philip. Only God could do what Jesus had been doing for three years. Only God could heal the sick, give sight to the blind, and raise the dead. Only God could exercise authority over demons and the wind and the waves. Only God could forgive sin. Couldn't Philip see that? That's why Jesus did what he did. He did what he did to make it known that he was God. He wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just a prophet. He was God in the flesh doing God's work on earth. They needed to understand that because in a very short time, he was going to be working through them in a similar manner. And he was going to send a divine helper to make it possible. Let's read on. Truly, truly I say to you, he who believes in me The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live You shall live also. In that day, you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The works that Jesus did were intended to demonstrate to the world that the Father was in him, working through him. And obviously, they were great works. But Jesus here states that his disciples would do even greater works. How could that be? 
How could disciples of Jesus do greater works than he did? The disciples had seen what Jesus had done, and he even raised the dead. What could be greater than that? Unless, of course, it's raising men to eternal life. The widow's son, Jarvis's daughter, and Lazarus were all raised back to life by Jesus, but as far as we know, they all died again. The only thing greater than raising someone from the dead would be raising them to eternal life. And that's exactly what the disciples would be commissioned to do. To take the good news the angels had declared to the shepherds on Christmas morning into the whole world. To share the news that a Savior has been born. That God came to earth, died for our sins, and rose from the grave to make it possible for us to live forever. That is without a doubt the greatest work in the world. And that's the work that was given to Jesus' disciples. And of course, that includes us. That great work was given to all of Jesus' disciples. But thankfully, we're not on our own. Jesus returned to the Father to enable us to do this work. He returned to a spiritual realm from which he can help us accomplish our task. And he promised to do whatever we ask him to do to enable us to get the job done. And since he is God Almighty, there's no limit to what he can do. All we need do is ask. Now, let's keep this promise in its context. Jesus wasn't promising to become Santa Claus and bring us whatever we ask for. Prayers asked in his name are prayers seeking to fulfill his desires, his will. He was promising to help us accomplish the mission he has given to us. He was promising to make it possible for us to do what he has commanded us to do, which we will do if we love him. And he promised to ask the Father to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to help us do it. Both promises have and are now being fulfilled. Jesus returned to the Father, so the Helper, the Paraclete, the one who stands beside to comfort, encourage, and strengthen, could come. Jesus left so the Holy Spirit could come and enable us to do the Father's work. And it's the Holy Spirit that's here referred to as the Spirit of Truth, a spirit the world does not behold or know because it refuses to acknowledge the truth. The world didn't know the Holy Spirit, but the disciples did. And they would soon come to know him even better. Contrary to a common misunderstanding, the Holy Spirit was present in the world before the day of Pentecost. And throughout the Old Testament, we find him occasionally empowering believers to accomplish God's will. On the day of Pentecost, however, 
the Holy Spirit would come to actually live within believers. He would take up residence in the hearts of all who would repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And Jesus was going to the cross to pay for those sins so his spirit could inhabit the forgiven, cleansed hearts of his disciples. He wasn't going to leave them as orphans. He was merely leaving the world physically so he could return and inhabit his disciples spiritually. The world wouldn't see him anymore, but they would. Through eyes of faith, they could see the living God at work in their lives. And through his presence within them, they would find life, real life, meaningful life. In that day, they would know that Jesus was in the Father, they were in him, and he was in them. In that day, they would understand the relationship between the Father and Son because the Spirit of God would be in them. We don't merely celebrate something that happened 2,000 years ago when we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the coming of the Son of God who made it possible for the Spirit of God to indwell us. Today, as the Father was in the Son, so can the Spirit be in us. And through His Spirit, the Son of God uses us to bring glory to the Father. I can think of nothing that would give Him more pleasure as we celebrate the coming of Jesus to earth than for him to hear us say, I'm just like you, Dad. I'm just like you. And we can say that if we will allow Jesus to cleanse us from our sins and allow his spirit to enter us and mold us into his image. Not finding room in the inn was no big deal for Jesus. Not finding room in your heart will break his. Don't let that happen.